Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, Josh, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. I know I introduced you a little bit before the episode. Can you just introduce yourself personally to those who are listening and let them know your first experience within the independent fundamental Baptist movement? Well, I actually grew up in the independent Baptist church from the nursery on up until well, this month, really. I grew up in Georgia, going to a independent Baptist church in Suwannee, Georgia. Um, I actually had growing up a pretty good experience in my church. We had a good youth group. Nothing really overly crazy happened while I was growing up, but that kind of changed when I went off to college. I went to Marine Baptist College in Glen St. Mary that was with Tom and Greg Neal there. I was there, saw some things that weren't right. I was actually there when the whole video scandal happened. So needless to say, as a, a sophomore in no, actually, I was a, a junior in college. My now wife was a sophomore. We didn't know what all was going to go on with that. So we just kind of stayed and graduated. But uh, outside of that, you know, I became a pastor while I was pastoring. Uh, overall, things went well for the first couple years. Church was growing. We had some good things happening. Then we had an opportunity to merge our church with another local church, both congregations weren't very big. We had grown, but we went from 10, including me and my wife, to 30 to 40. Right. And they had probably about the same. So we thought it'd be best. They were only five minutes up the road. We thought best to merge the congregations. Well, in doing that, I was preaching for two churches, working a full-time job, starting a new job, also working a second job, all trying to help the church. That wound up causing me to be put in the hospital. Mm. And afterwards, I started. Am I saying too much? No, right that's, no, that's um, that's good. But let me circle back really quick, and then we can we can pick up because I do want to just hit this really quick. When you say you know Greg Neal's church, you know that's for me that's a big red flag kind of sign because that was a pretty big story 
for those within the IFB. For those who aren't familiar, can you just give a quick rundown of what happened there and kind of what I'm always curious when like you hear about stuff like this, when you hear about, you know, the Scott case or when you hear any of these big stories, I'm always curious what the vibe was actually at the place. Because you see a lot of the conversation of people outside those ministries, but I'm curious, what was the what was the experience like in the middle of that situation? Well, it, it kind of, as far as a college student, which is what I was, it, it kind of depended if you were from Burien. If you grew up at the school there, you were typically pretty gung-ho about it, saying it's a conspiracy, so on and so forth. If you were not from Berean, then it was kind of a, I have no idea what's going on. Right. I remember calling my dad because I, I found out about it on the radio. I was riding home from work and all of a sudden I hear it on uh, whatever the news station was there in Jacksonville. And I just pulled off on a dirt road and called my dad saying, what in the world do I do? Right. Uh, you know, so, so most of us really didn't know what, what really to do. We've got... <laughs> Obviously, as you mentioned, all the outside information coming in, saying right. there's overwhelming evidence coming from the the district attorney, and then we've got the inside stuff. You know, because I, I remember one of the things I saw that really made me confused about it was while when they passed out the papers that had the list of the the accusations, so on and so forth, after the evening service on Easter Sunday. Then I saw an argument between the guy who was heading up the, I don't even know what to term it now. I don't want to say rebellion, but you know, that type right. of deal where they were confronting them about it. You know, I heard them having an argument of when we're going to replace the ceiling tiles or something stupid like that. Hmm. So one thing that really confused us was some of the people that had an opportunity to do something about it waited until the best moment for their own game. So that put us in an awkward position because we don't know what to believe. Hmm. So that, that was kind of the vibe, at least from my end. You know, I, I really, I didn't know. I had no clue whether it was real or not. Right. You know, I had never personally seen the video. Obviously there was a video and I'm getting a bunch of different, bunch of information pushed at me. Right. So we didn't know what to believe. That's kind of a shattering experience to, you know, hear something like that and to like, you know, have that in the back of your mind while attending a college and there's a lot of questions that raises, but I mean, obviously, you know, you stuck with it. You, you know, you kept staying in the, the realm of, you know, getting involved in ministry and things and kind of getting back to where you were in your story. Like, obviously it was a lot <laughs> you were taking on, like a lot of people work in ministries. I know both my parents were in um, church ministries. And this is not an IFB exclusive problem. Like I see this happening in lots of churches across the board, really good, well-intentioned people that overextend themselves trying to help everybody to fill every pulpit position that they can to, you know, really just take care of business. And it can be harmful. And I know you mentioned it puts you in the hospital. Tell me about that. And kind of like, did you take that as a sign to to slow down? Did you take that as like, you know, did you just try to dust yourself off and keep going? Like, what was your kind of internal dialogue at that point? Uh, a little bit of everything you just mentioned. <laughs> uh, I mean, it kind of depended on the day. You know, I'd wake up right. one day and 
uh, you know, all right, let's go build this thing. And I'm going to wake up the next day and I am terrible at life. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that was kind of where I was. And that's what was really missing was I would have these uncontrolled thoughts of suicide mm. and I didn't know what, what, what to do about them. And they would just be at random. I'd be riding home and all of a sudden I'd feel just as sad as could be and start thinking, if I ran this car up this bridge right now, nobody'd miss me. You know, things like that would wow. run through my head. I'd shake my head and say, what in the world am I saying? Because right. I know in my mind, I'm thinking this is absolutely crazy talk. Right. But at the same time, they were very persistent. Right. I actually had a conversation with my boss at the time about it. And he looked at me with a bewildered look and said, you would know more about this than I would. Uh, he knew I was a pastor, so on mm. and so forth. I know, right? But it was still so bewildering, bewildering, you know what, what I'm trying to say. Right, right. <laughs> that, to me, it confused me. I didn't know really what to do. And so that's when I went to the previous pastor. By the way, nice gentleman, him and his wife, nice people. But that was just some terrible advice that I had received. The moment they said it, I automatically thought, no, this is not it. And I'm sorry, but what what was the advice? What was the advice that they were giving you at the time? That I was demon possessed, and that I needed Hmm. to do something about being demon possessed. Right. Let me ask you this before we dive any further. I'm just curious because I know for me, I've talked about it on the show a little bit, but like I had a huge, and I really wouldn't have even identified it as this at the time, but I had a huge stigma against therapy, against seeking, you know medical help, counselors, you know, therapists, all that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of that was fueled by the way that I was taught by, you know, certain people that were in authority over me at the time. And I'm, I'm just curious, when you first started feeling these kind of thoughts, did you, were you hard on yourself? Did you feel like, man, I'm really, you know, did you make it a spiritual issue in your own mind? Or did it just feel like I have no idea how to address this whatsoever? And you, you didn't really have a, a clear way to think about it. I was very hard on myself. I felt like a total screw up. Mm. You know, that's right. how I felt. You know, I felt like I was no good at anything. I started going down and even it's kind of like if you remember Elijah in the Bible, when he asked the Lord to take his life, he made this, the statement for I am not better than my father's. He, he couldn't see the fact that he had just called down fire from heaven and so right. on and so forth. He, he couldn't see that. All he could see was the fact that he was a failure. At that point, I couldn't see any of the successes that I had had in my life. All I could see was the failures and they were what was prominent. And yeah. like you, there was a stigma about getting help from a therapist, a psychologist, so on and so forth, which is why I went to a pastor instead of a yeah. medical professional. And right. I mean, I actually, that's one of the reasons I asked the question on the the forum about a week ago, why there's such an aversion to that. Right. It makes no sense to me looking back now, because what helped me was actually one of my church members had a degree in psychology, and I was having a meeting with him, and it was over a, a, a church business issue. We were talking about different things with the church and he saw that I was just spaced out as could be. So he knew something was wrong. He pulled me aside. 
So it wasn't me going to somebody. It was somebody recognizing the issue I had and coming to me. And, mm. you know, if he hadn't have done that, I have no idea where I'd be right now. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, having that aversion, I, I don't understand that as I stand right now, why we have that. Even looking at somebody like Freud in the early days of psychology or modern psychology who was an avid atheist that still doesn't change. He was right on certain things. And so were right. psychologists coming up. No, definitely. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think that's huge. And I, I really do, you know, I think this is something that's kind of, and I expected this to come up on the show repeatedly is the aversion to therapy, the, you know, bad counsel is a pretty common thing to have. I honestly don't understand it either. I don't really get the way that that's taught, even if it wasn't explicitly said, you know, I meet people and it was just hinted at like, oh, if you go, you know, something's wrong, you know, and it's, it's just crazy because we look at doctors for our physical needs and it's like, is it possible that God gave us therapists for our, you know, spiritual needs and for our spirit or not spiritual, our mental um, health and mental needs. But there's, it's rare that you see people who in that world who accept that for what it is. So, Oh, I was going to say, I think one of the issues with in the IFB world is they tend to snowball things. So you probably oh. somewhere on down the line in the Southern Baptist seminary or whatever somebody was talking about the atheism of a freud or somebody like that the next right. thing you know the ifb whippersnapper that turns around and says all psychologists are atheists and they're of the devil <laughs> you know i almost wonder if that's kind of how that came about right yeah definitely and I, and I do think there's probably some element too you know the idea that you know again i i don't i don't like leaning into the conspiracy side of, of things on a lot of this but I think there are certain, you know, pastors too, who are fearful that what if a therapist says that, you know, something at the church is affecting them? Or what if, you know, what if they question something that I'm teaching from the pulpit? No, I was going to say, I think there's sometimes people who are worried. What if a therapist says that something that I'm preaching is harmful? Or what if, you know, something at the church environment is something I need to step away from? Or what if they're, you know, especially when you have someone working, you know, round the clock to, to do ministries and things like, what if they ask them to step away from that stuff? I think there is some element of that power struggle. It doesn't sound like that was the case in your church, but I do think I saw that within certain people that would speak about it negatively to me. But yeah, there's a, it's kind of a mystery. Like a lot of things in the IP, I can point to a lot of maybes, but it's hard to really say for sure. Like, Hey, this is why there's just certain things that are taught that are kind of a given. And it's, it's kind of confusing about it. So after, I mean, it's awesome that a church member was able to spot that. Uh, what was kind of the process past that point? Did you start kind of addressing the issue then? Or was it still quite a while before you actually really started, you know, looking into that? Really, I started, we started addressing it then. Me and him would, I usually stayed at the church on Sunday afternoons. And so he kind of was my therapy session. We'd, hmm. you know, just take a walk around the block and just talk. He'd ask you know, where are you at? What are you thinking right now? What's, you know, so on and so forth. And I mean, he was the, the big help that I needed. Mm. And I laughed that he, he, he used a, uh, a placebo on me. I, it was so funny. I'm sitting there as he's telling me all this stuff about, you know, it was basically rose scented water that he was 
actually. And I'm, I'm thinking, I know what this is. He's using a placebo, <laughs> but I know it's going to work too. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. And uh, so, you know, he, he, he was basically, he just, he was a friend, you know, he was somebody very easy to talk to. I know everybody's a little bit different in how they handle different scenarios. For me, it was just having somebody to talk to, yeah. not necessarily unload on, but just, you know, just to discuss things mm. and that that helped me it was a huge help for me yeah no that's so, awesome that's pretty much what happened. that's awesome you know what was kind of your going through these you know quote-unquote therapy sessions like what were some of your big takeaways and you know what steps toward you know kind of i guess improving i hesitant to use the phrase self-improvement but what steps did you take to kind of alleviate some of the stressors and negative kind of toxic things that had crept in? Well, one of the things I did was um, stop doing so much. That was one of the, the key elements to causing my breakdown was mm-hmm. the fact that I was, I, I hadn't had a day off, a true consistent day off during the week at that point for seven years. So because mm-hmm. wow. I went pastoring straight out from college. While I was in college, I was full-time job full-time employee taking a full load of classes and saturdays were split between ministry and dating mm. and then threat you know i was going all day sunday well right. i continued that type of pattern as a pastor and it escalated when i was then doing it for two churches right. uh, along with doing full-time job and two side jobs wow. so i basically just sat back and took a day of rest I, I stopped pushing myself as hard I guess right. and that's really the biggest thing that helped me was just understanding that your your body needs to rest otherwise it's going to rebel against you right no definitely um and what was fueling like I mean obviously I think well no you're you're not the first but it's you know it's not always common to have you know someone who was involved in the ministry side you know as specifically as being a pastor on the show. And, and I'm curious, like what was propelling you? Like what was making you put in all this extra time? What was driving you to take on all these responsibilities and, you know, essentially, you know, looking back now, overextending yourself, what was feeling that? Did you feel like it was just, you know, you were just trying to do the best you could? Did you feel like there was pressure on you or that you, you know, you had to meet certain criteria? Like what was kind of the mindset during that time period? I'm a very competitive person, so I'd say there had to have been a little bit of pressure, at least internally, from mm-hmm. me. There wasn't that much pressure right. externally. I kind of became a loner type. I never really called anybody. I never really talked with anybody as far as ministry-wise, and, and that was just kind of my personality. But what probably drove me the most was the idea that everybody in my area is dying and going to hell. I have to reach them, right. you know, kind of the, the, the IFB mentality that it was almost kind of either IFB or nothing, you know, Southern Baptists don't preach the gospel. Lutherans don't preach the gospel. Presbyterians don't preach the, that, that type of yeah. deal that, right. you know, I had raised it, you know, that I'd had that, you know, since I was in diapers. And right. so that was my driving force. And so I see all these people. We, I, I was actually pastoring in, in the Orlando area where I'm going back to. Mm. And I saw all the people around me and I saw such a need, especially since I was, I was near the Sanford area where 
happened to see where Trayvon Martin was mm. shot. Mm. And a lot of Sanford, not, not all of it, but a lot of Sanford was kind of a rough area. And I, I felt for the people. I wanted to reach them with the gospel. I wanted to do my best to help as many people as I could. You know, I felt it was it was my calling to do so. So I pushed myself to to do whatever I could to try and help them. And then when I wound up doing the two churches, both churches, you know, were in really beat up buildings. And so I had these grandiose ideas of, okay, so let's combine the congregations. Let's give me off salary and let's turn around, let's build new buildings, so on and so forth. So I, I was pressuring myself to try and reach those goals, but I didn't have a whole lot of help there. It, it was mostly just me and a couple of my friends both congregations were older, so they weren't, you know, out doing the whole soul winning thing, what have you. Right. Right. And so that was just me and, you know, they were putting the pressure on me. I felt more pressure from them after I got put in the hospital and decided to take a day of rest, so on and so forth, because now they're saying, well, you're not building the church. Wow. And some of them started, you know, pushing me from that end, which ultimately led me to stepping down because I knew it wasn't going to be a good situation i couldn't give them what they wanted and I, I didn't feel right sitting there you know taking their paycheck every week right so tell me a little bit about that journey toward um you know ultimately making the decision to to step away and i don't think you told me this beforehand so i'm just curious when you say stepped away do you mean primarily from stepping away from ministry side or stepping away from faith like what when you say stepping away what does that look like as far as your situation? I, well, I stepped away from full-time ministry. I have not in any way lost my faith. I, I have to say I've grown closer to God in the last few months than I have, period. And ultimately that means I've drifted away from IFB ideology and my thinking. And I'm thankful that my wife has been supportive of me, especially here recently. But I, I've grown closer to the Lord than I have my entire life just mm. in these few months that I haven't because I, I resigned my church back in June of last year and then I moved here to Alabama I was working with a pastor helping him with the youth group but it was part-time basis you know taking youth activities once a month what have you teach Sunday school nothing major mm. and now that's led we're moving back down to Florida where the economy's better right now I'm just going to be working a job and see where the Lord leads as far as any ministry goes, I have an offer to pastor a church down there. I don't think I'm going to take it, mm. but I mean, that's, that's pretty much what it's been. I'm, I'm kind of in a little bit of a limbo situation right now, but at the same time, I'm, I feel good. I've learned more from the Bible in the last several months that I've had to actually have time to sit down, study, review my doctrinal views in light of scripture, so on and so forth. So I'd have to say I've grown closer to God, but I'm doing less, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes sense. And I, I have that experience too. You know, I, I don't know how much I've talked about this on the show, but I actually, I, I mean, that started as early as, the you know, first initially leaving the IFB. Um, and when I left, I went from, you know, working on a bus route and singing in a choir, which I can't sing. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, singing in a choir, working on a bus route, you know, doing some stuff as an usher. Like I was doing anything and everything at the church I was growing up at. And then, you know, I burned out 
really hard. That's why I'm always in awe of people who make it all the way through to actually becoming a pastor or something, because I, I just burned out by the time I graduated high school. Um, but going to the church I went to after that, which, you know, I've, I've, I talked about in the last episode, um, as of this recording, but, uh, you know, I talked about that experience that being such a positive change and I grew closer to God in my own personal spiritual journey far more than I had ever been close to God in my entire life. And I was doing pretty much nothing. Like I wasn't doing all these ministry positions. I wasn't, I wasn't volunteering. And I even told them, I said, I'm not ready to do that stuff yet. And that was okay. But it, it gave me time to breathe and actually think about the whys of my you know, Christian life. And so I definitely resonate with that. And the same thing, like, I know I've never shared this on the show, but like I was doing missions work uh, when we first got married just a few years ago and, you know, ended up having a, you know, a, a not so positive falling out um, after that experience. But now I'm looking at it, I'm like, I'm, I'm more sure of certain things in my religious and, you know, whatever you want to call it, my spiritual side than ever before even though I'm not necessarily in a quote unquote ministry position. And so, yeah, I definitely resonate with what you're saying. And I think sometimes, sometimes it's easy to get, and and this is in relationships. This is in, you know, your religious side, this is in your business side. If you get too busy, it's, it becomes difficult to remember the whys, like, why am I doing this? And so sometimes it is important to step away and get that clarity. I definitely, I definitely get that and, and respect that when people recognize something like that. So um, that's yeah. not really, that's not really a question. Sometimes I'm not a good interview. I just like to <laughs> share statements, but, but I, sometimes people say something that just resonates with me. And I think that's something that, you know, growing up, I thought it was, you know, you're more spiritual because of how much you do versus like, okay, I'm already loved by God because of who Christ is. And, you know, this is the most overtly spiritual I've ever been on the show, but um, I'm already loved because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for me. And, you know, I should be doing things out of love for him and not out of a desire to earn his love. And that's a very, it seems like a very small difference, but it's, it makes all the difference. Absolutely. Um, so as far as the pastor side, I mean, you, you talk about understanding the whys. I mean, how easy is it? for anybody especially when you're in an IFB circle that pushes things like soul winning so on and so forth that it all becomes a numbers game and you forget the people behind the numbers you forget the reason why you're doing it I mean you're you're pastoring not so you can have a big congregation and put it up on you know, taking selfies on Twitter or what that's not why mm. we do any of it. Do it right. because we as you mentioned, we do these things to be obedient to him. And then it, specifically for the pastor role, you do it because you also love his flock. I mean we mm. go back to you know, Jesus and Peter when they uh, you know, when he asked him, Peter, lovest thou me? I mean, what was his response? Beat my lips. We right. do that because we love God. Hmm. And I would hmm. say, I had, I, I have to say, I got away from that at least early on. That's part of the reason I became so focused on first merger, so on and so forth. Right. And I got away from that reason why. And then ironically, when I got away from that and started saying, well, no, we need to do this out of obedience and 
stopped working so much. Well, that kind of went downhill with certain people. Mm. Yeah, def- yeah, definitely. Um, man, I resonate with so much of what you're saying. And it really is like, it's, it's such a, and that's kind of, you know, you hear the word legalism thrown around, but that really is the essence of it. It's when you feel like doing all those things is going to earn you some kind of favor or status or, or access, you know, that you, that you should already know that you have. And so, you know, it's definitely, I think this is, this episode's already, I can tell, important for people who are in these positions, people who are, you know, striving to, you know, do 30 different ministries because they feel like it gives them some extra level of spirituality. That's just not the case. You're, you're just hurting yourself and many times hurting your family and even, even your ministries. So uh, I'm curious about that aspect. So you've talked about how it's affected you. Did, did this affect your marriage relationship at the time being trying to balance these two churches and all these different things, and then also being married on top of that? I can't imagine it. It was conducive to necessarily uh, in a positive way, at least. You know, it's difficult, honestly, for me to tell my wife's kind of the quiet type. Right. She, that never has been a talker. I mean, our first date, I got her to say two words, and I was excited <laughs> to get that. Right. Uh, and that's just how she is. You know, it's not me, just to clarify, it's not me beating her into any type of submission. She could basically do whatever she wants. I, I really don't care. Right. But I, I can't help but wonder. In fact, I actually asked her today, as far as with us, we're, we're actually moving today mm-hmm. to go back down to Florida. Um, and I actually asked her all this moving and a lot of it was ministry related, so on and so forth, all this moving. How has it affected you? Mm. She said, well, I'm tired of moving. <laughs> right. I like, well, at least I got that. So I told her I don't plan on moving cities again for a long, long time. So I, I would say it, it affected it a little bit, but I'm thankful for my wife. She's a, a real sweet lady until you get to football season. Then she's mean as a rattlesnake, <laughs> um, but real sweet, sweet lady. We recently came to the decision over the last month or so to, to start a family. You know, I would have to say I'm thankful that I didn't have kids during that time. Otherwise, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can only imagine how far down the rabbit hole I would have gone. Right. But I'm very thankful for her, for what she's done and how she's been a help me to me. You know, I, I just have to say I'm blessed with who I got. So. Right. No, that's awesome. So, I mean, obviously... You know, you ultimately made the decision to step away. So, well, I guess first, do you have plans to eventually move back into those types of roles, or are you still trying to figure out kind of what's on the horizon as far as that goes? As far as an official ministry position, I have no idea. Okay. I get bored too easily, so <laughs> I imagine I will find something to do. Even right. when I'm supposed to be relaxing, I'll find something to do. My wife hates it when I have a day off because I I just bounce off the walls. I've always had a bunch of energy. drives her crazy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately, I, I want to be obedient to God first and foremost. So having some form of which I am giving the gospel, I think, would be important for me. But at the same time, I, I think we have too much of a hierarchy set up too much focus on numbers, so on and so forth for me really to get involved in any ministry type deal. Again, it would be difficult for me to, I'm not going to say it wouldn't happen, but it would have to be 
especially in the position of a pastor, it would, it would have to be a church that has the right mindset. Right. I mean, if they're gung-ho IFB, it's not going to work out. Right. It's, it's, it's not, you know, because I mean, they, they're wanting somebody typically from what I've seen, they're wanting somebody who's going to come in and, you know, within the first week, have every door knocked in the, <laughs> right. in the vicinity of the church, so on and so forth, you know, and I, I can't do that again. You know, I, I did that before and it, it about killed me. So it, it would kind of just depend on the situation, I guess. Right. So having, I mean, having left, obviously realizing there were some unhealthy elements of what you were doing and the way that you were living in that world. Um, what's been most helpful for you? I know you mentioned like obviously talking to someone about it has been huge and community seems to be a recurring theme when it comes to overcoming negative toxic environments. But what else has been helpful for you as far as kind of improving your mindset, you know, maybe improving your mood and, you know, overall mental health, I guess we could say, what's been most helpful for you in that regard? But you, you mentioned community. I mean, having good friends, I mean, we're, we're social creatures. We, we were never meant to be loners, so on and so forth. So having friends has been a huge help to me. There's one friend I'm thinking of in particular, you know, she's, she's been a good friend to both me and my wife. In fact, actually, we'll move down to Florida until me and my wife can get an apartment. That's actually who my wife's going to be staying with. And so we're real close to her. But as far as all of this goes, basically, since the whole Giovanelli situation up in Jacksonville, we, we kind of kept tabs on that. Me, her, and another friend of ours, we kind of kept tabs on that for a little bit. My wife <laughs> didn't really care, so she just kind of let, you know, you guys can talk about that. I'll just hang out over here type deal. But when that happened, it kind of opened our eyes to a lot of as far as the IFB, not necessarily my personal situation, but just in general, the, the abusive stuff that's, that, that's going on. And I would actually have to say, Sarah Jackson's changed my mind on a lot of things, mm. seeing the things that she's gone through. Because I remember right when it came out, I know Tom Neal came out with a article talking about Stacey Shiplett. And yeah. I had at that time only known about a family member. And this is completely different. Uh, if we get down this rabbit hole, it's going to take another hour. But just briefly... I had a family member who was accused of sexually abusing his children. On his deathbed, they admitted to my grandmother that, no, they did not, but they refused to clear his name. So I grew up with that kind of aversion to hearing people being abused. And then probably about a month after the whole thing came out with Giovanelli while he was still at North Valley, I had another family member pulled me aside and we sat down over lunch and they told me that when they were a child, they had been abused. And I had seen a lot of things that this person had gone through and as far as alcohol, so on and so forth, thank Lord they've been sober for a couple decades. But that shocked me to realize yeah. that all that pain that they had suffered and the way it had impacted their family, so on and so forth, was all caused because somebody had abused them when they were a teenager. Right. And so that started to change my mindset. So I started to have a little bit of more of an open mind to it. And then, you know, the whole Sarah Smith article came out and I started seeing that. And so both me and these friends were looking at it 
And as we're talking about this, it, it, it was good for me and from what they've said, good for them to have people that we could rely on and right. talk to and hash these issues out, you know, kind of say, trying to solve the world in a single conversation type deal. But that was good for me coming through this and then having something to, to talk about and having that sense of community and camaraderie, right. even though it was over a terrible issue. Yeah. It was still good to have that. Right. No, definitely. I'm curious what you'd say, um, just from a, you know, obviously from a former pastor's perspective and knowing people within that world a little bit, you know, when you see these stories of abuse, obviously, I mean, I think you agree with the, you know, at least by coming on the show, I would assume you agree that abuse is a big problem. But do you think that, you know, I've seen other, you know, former IP pastors or IP pastors who say like, you know, there's a couple of big cases like this that are really bad, but overall, or I don't think the majority, or I don't think it's a systemic problem. I know that's a big thing. I don't think it's a systemic problem within it. Like, do you think, this isn't a trick question, but I'm just curious, do you think that the IFB as a whole has a problem with, with abuse and creates cultures in which abuse can really thrive? Or do you think that it is a couple really bad guys that are really affecting and harming the movements? Like, I guess it kind of leads to my that last question of like, is there hope for reform of the IFB movement? Or, you know, does it simply need to be put to rest? Like, do you think there's a way in which this movement could be reformed and changed? Or do you think that it's in the mindsets and the kind of practical, you know, application of these ministries? And that's kind of a huge question, but it's one I think there's a lot of controversy over. Mm. Anytime you see a, a situation with abuse, there's, there's never a good turnout. You're either going to have one of two things. Either a person has been harmed in some way, physically, mentally, sexually, and very possible that that would scar, and I would say very likely that's going to scar them for the rest of their life, or somebody has been accused wrongly. Either situation's bad. The biggest issue I see is the reaction coming out of the independent Baptist movement. I know I saw a video on IFB preacher clips the other day that I was talking about the Catholic church and saying how, you know, you've got thousands of so on, but you can only name about 150. And I believe he came up with, if you can name 150, which by the way, I can, you get about 5%. I forgot where I read it, but I want to say it was tied in with the Sarah Smith article. The Catholic church ranged around 4%. Right. And this individual was saying that there was a systemic problem in the Catholic Church. Mm. Well, if you're saying there's a systemic problem in the Catholic Church, then there must be a systemic problem in the independent Baptist churches because statistically, you are more likely to be abused sexually, strictly. That's not including mentally or physically in the independent Baptist churches than you are in the Catholic Church. And that's just going by the... So, I mean, how can we turn around and deny these actions or decry them and say, no, they're just attacks of the devil. No, if there's an issue, we ought to handle the issue. That is, again, why Christ told his disciples where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of thee. It's to judge things that aren't expressly stated in the Bible. We ought to have enough wisdom right. to, be able to handle these situations. We ought to be. 
not cover up. I mean, the one thing that, that that drives me crazy is every time I hear somebody saying, "Well, you're bringing reproach to the name of Christ." No, God said it specifically in His Word that sin is the reproach to any people. Mm. Yeah. It's a sin that's committed that is the reproach to it. And when we're reacting to these situations by denying them or attacking someone who comes forward, it's a foolish action. Yeah. Even Solomon said it. He, oh, why am I forgetting this first? He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is, fall, is folly unto him. Or some, I'm misquoting it, but something to that degree. Somebody who answers the matter before they've basically seen the evidence and stating that, you know, this is a false accusation before you have any clue what's going on. That's stupid. That's foolish. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see so often. And that right. the, the entire issue itself. But as you mentioned, there's some systemic issues within the movement. That doesn't mean that every IFB preacher is a, don't misunderstand this. 100%. Not a, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can name some good ones. Like, you know, my father-in-law is an IFB preacher. An awesome guy. Absolutely right. awesome. So, you know, but I would have to say there are some issues that come from unscriptural practices mm. that have either from the founding of the independent Baptist movement or have crept in over time that right. have created situations where people have been hurt. Right. We can't deny that. Right. I mean, it'd be one thing to turn around and say, I mean, you see the same thing happen in schools. You see the same thing happen in places of business, so on and so forth. But the difference is how are they handling it? Somebody right. gets fired out of other one of those, but then we want to try and protect somebody who's in a church where somebody's supposed to be coming to for healing. No. Wow. Yeah. Um, man, yeah, that's a really, there's a lot that you just said that I'm just kind of thinking about right now, but I'm just curious, what do you think we can talk about systemic abuse? We can talk about whether it's systemic or not. We can talk about the, the end of the day, it's an issue and, and it's something that, you know, sure. Is it does stuff like this happen everywhere? You know, regardless, it's a problem and it needs to be addressed. And I guess I'm curious, what do you see as the steps we can take to kind of change the cycle of abuse within this world? And, and what do you think we can do to kind of pivot things into a better direction? You know, maybe for those listening who don't want to leave an IFB church, but they want to be a voice of positive change. Like what changes do you think need to happen to make this less of a large number moving forward? If you even know what the answer would be to that. That's, I mean, the answer would be a lot of, different things depending on the situation but i mean the biggest issue right now that i see in independent baptist churches and it was a similar issue with all the the catholic cover-ups is singular authority having somebody that has enough power in a church situation where they can turn a person who is hurting has come to the pastor or who was hurt by the pastor and everybody's either too afraid or they don't want to remove him from that position because of either the bravado or the power that they have. Mm-hmm. We don't find that structure in the Bible. You find the role of a bishop, but you also find the role of elders and deacons. Right. So, I mean, th- this idea of the singular dominant figure that has ultimate power, that has to go away. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a little bit more of a balance of power 
And I remember growing up, I mean, our church didn't even have deacons. Right. I mean, they did before, you know, I was born, but when they all died off, we never realized them. And right. so you had a singular authority. Now, thankfully, my pastor was a good man, an honorable man. And, you know, we never had major issues, at least none that I saw. Right. But then you get a situation where you get a pastor in who is a dominant figure right. who can turn around and say, oh, hey, the youth pastor is touching this young lady. We don't need this type of stigma on the church. Let's ship mm-hmm. him out to two states over yeah. and not have any approval from a deacon or have nobody being none the wiser. Hey, why did this guy disappear in the middle of the night? Oh, well, the pastor knows best. You know, that that has to stop. And we we have to understand that the pastor, the bishop of the New Testament is not the position of the Old Testament prophets. That Mm. term man of God that we see all the time that was never used referring to the bishop at any point. So we've taken, seen, you know, pastors and even, you know, same thing with me. I was the singular authority in the church. And ironically, I had people begging me to take more authority than I already did. Right. But it's just that mentality of having to have that one singular dominant figure. No, the church is a body and we work together in unison and as we grow closer to the Lord and we preach his gospel. That's what our goal ought to be. And that doesn't happen when we have a singular domineering figure right. that's barking out orders to everybody else. Right. That's awesome. No, that's a great, that's a great answer. And I, I tend to agree with you with the points that you're making and, you know, it's, it goes back to, you You know, you talked about bringing reproach to the church. I think, you know, the people bringing reproach to the church are the abusers. And I think it brings further reproach on anyone who would cover up for guys like this. So I agree with you. I think there needs to be a lot more accountability, a lot more, you know, engaging with this topic. And I hope to see more people coming out and just siding with these victims and survivors of these kind of situations. And I, I appreciate you for doing that and for coming on the show and, really just, you know, sharing your experience. It it really means a lot to me, and I know it will to our audience as well. Yes, sir, anytime. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes, and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.